Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the capture of Bushranger Ned Kelly, a gigantic unexplained explosion in the Russian sky, and the lone survivor of a plane crash that killed 152 people. The events took place on June 28th and June 30th. June 28, 1880. Australian bushranger Ned Kelly is captured. Edward Kelly, better known as Ned Kelly, was an Australian bushranger, outlaw, gang leader, and convicted cop killer. Bushrangers were escaped convicts in the early years of British settlement in Australia, who used the bushes to hide from the authorities. Kelly was born in the colony of Victoria as the third of eight children to Irish parents. As a boy, Kelly obtained basic schooling and became familiar with the bush. At age 11, he risked his life to save another boy from drowning in a creek. The boy's family gave Kelly a green sash, which he was wearing under his armor during his final showdown with police many years later. Ned's father was a convict and an alcoholic. He died shortly after serving a six-month prison sentence, leaving the 12-year-old Kelly as the eldest male of the household. The Kellys were a poor family who saw themselves as victims of persecution by the Victoria Police. In 1869, aged 14, Kelly met Irish-born Harry Power, a convict who turned to bushranging in Victoria after escaping from prison in Melbourne. The Kellys formed part of his network of sympathizers, and by May of 1869, Ned had become his bushranging protege. The young Kelly was arrested twice over the next year but had the charges dropped as there were conflicting stories and no credible witnesses. Harry Power was arrested in June of 1870 and believed Ned had betrayed him, which Ned strongly denied. Kelly was eventually arrested for associating with Power and served two prison terms for a variety of offenses. The longest stretch for Kelly was three years from 1871 to 1874 on a conviction of receiving a stolen horse. As Kelly dismounted the stolen horse during his arrest, Constable Edward Hall tried to grab him by the scruff of his neck, but failed. When Kelly resisted arrest, Hall drew his revolver and tried to shoot him, but it misfired three times. He was then overpowered by Kelly, who later said that he straddled Hall and dug his boot spurs into his thighs, causing the constable to squeal like a big calf being attacked by dogs. After subduing Kelly with the assistance of seven bystanders, Hall pistol-whipped him until his head became, quote, a mass of raw and bleeding flesh. Ned said he got the horse from Isaiah Wild Wright and did not know the horse was stolen. After Kelly was released from prison in 1874, to settle the score with Wright over the horse, Kelly fought him in a bare-knuckle boxing match at the Imperial Hotel in Beechworth. Kelly won after 20 rounds and was declared the unofficial boxing champion of the district. Isaiah Wright became an enthusiastic supporter of Kelly as well. In 1877, Kelly joined his stepfather and Isaiah Wright in an organized horse-stealing operation. The gang stole nearly 300 horses. Many in the group also belonged to the Greta Mob, a gang of bushrangers who adopted a distinctive flashy style of dress. The Greta Mob also included Ned's brothers, Jim and Dan, and his cousins, Tom and Jack Lloyd. In August of 1877, Ned, his stepfather, and a number of accomplices stole 11 horses from James Whitty, 
a wealthy local. Kelly altered the brands on the horses and sold six of them to a horse dealer near the New South Wales border. The police were on Kelly's trail and a warrant for his arrest and the arrest of his younger brother Dan was issued on April 5, 1878. Kelly's stepfather disappeared, never to be seen again. On April 15th, Constable Alex Fitzpatrick, who was involved in a fistfight with Ned Kelly during an arrest six months earlier, rode to Greta in search of the Kelly brothers. Upon arriving at the Kelly home, Dan was not there and Fitzpatrick remained with Kelly's mother in conversation for about an hour. Three children were also present. According to Fitzpatrick, Dan arrived on horseback soon after, along with his brother-in-law. Dan was arrested and asked the constable if it was okay to have dinner before leaving. The constable consented and stood guard over him while he ate. Minutes later, Ned Kelly rushed in through the door, pulled his revolver, and fired a shot at Fitzpatrick, but missed him. Ellen Kelly then hit Fitzpatrick over the head with a fire shovel. There was a struggle and Kelly fired two more shots, wounding Fitzpatrick just above his left wrist. During the struggle, Dan Kelly disarmed Fitzpatrick and now had his revolver. His brother-in-law, Bill Skillion, and Bricky Williamson then entered the room, both armed with revolvers. Ned told Fitzpatrick that he wouldn't have fired at him if he knew it was him. Fitzpatrick fainted and when he regained consciousness, Kelly compelled him to extract the bullet from his own arm with a knife. Kelly's mother dressed the wound. Ned Kelly concocted a cover story and said that if Fitzpatrick told this story, he would reward him later. Mrs. Kelly said that if he mentioned what really happened, his life would be no good for him. Fitzpatrick was then allowed to leave. He had ridden away about a mile when he realized that two horsemen were pursuing him. But, by spurring his horse into a gallop, he escaped to the Winton Hotel where he was assisted inside by the manager. His wound was rebandaged and he was given brandy and water. The hotel manager then rode with him to the town of Benalla, where he reported the affair to his superior officer. Ned Kelly's version of the events was much different. Kelly said that at the time of the incident, he was 200 miles from home and his mother asked Fitzpatrick if he had a warrant and Fitzpatrick said that he only had a telegram, to which his mother said that Dan shouldn't have to go. Fitzpatrick then pulled out a revolver and said, I will blow your brains out if you interfere. His mother replied, You would not be so handy with that popgun of yours if Ned was here. Dan then said, trying to trick Fitzpatrick, There is Ned coming along by the side of the house. While he was pretending to look out of the window for Ned, Dan cornered Fitzpatrick and took the revolver. He then released Fitzpatrick unharmed. If Fitzpatrick suffered any wounds, they were possibly self-inflicted. In 1879, Ned's sister Kate, who was 14 at the time of the incident, stated that Kelly shot Fitzpatrick after the drunken police officer had made a sexual advance towards her. After Ned Kelly was captured, he denied that Fitzpatrick made an advance on Kate. He said, no, that's a foolish story. If he or any other policeman tried to take liberties with my sister, Victoria would not hold him. Three police officers later gave sworn evidence that Kelly, after his capture, admitted he shot Fitzpatrick. In 1881, Bricky Williamson, who was seeking remission for his presence during the incident, stated that Kelly shot Fitzpatrick after the policeman had drawn his revolver. Williamson, Skillion, and Ellen Kelly were arrested and charged with aiding and abetting attempted murder. They were convicted as accessories to the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick. 
Skillion and Williamson both received sentences of six years, and Ellen got three years of hard labor. Ellen Kelly's sentence was considered harsh, even by people who had no cause to be Kelly sympathizers, especially as she was nursing a newborn baby at the time. Ned and Dan Kelly were nowhere to be found. After the Fitzpatrick incident, Ned Kelly, Dan Kelly, and associate Joe Byrne went into hiding. They were soon joined by Steve Hart, a friend of Dan. They were based at Bullock Creek in the Wombat Ranges, where they made money panning gold and distilling whiskey, and were supplied with provisions and information by sympathizers, including Ned's cousin, Tom Lloyd. The police had received information that the Kelly gang was in the Wombat Ranges, and two mounted police parties were dispatched to search for them. One party camped overnight at an abandoned mining site about 25 miles north of Mansfield. They were unaware that they were only one mile from the Kelly gang's hideout and that Ned Kelly had seen their tracks. On the following morning, two officers went scouting while the other two remained at the camp. At about 5 p.m., the four members of the Kelly gang emerged from the bush and ordered the two policemen in the camp to raise their arms. Officer McIntyre raised his arms, but Officer Lonigan attempted to draw his revolver. Ned Kelly immediately shot Lonigan, killing him. The gang then questioned McIntyre and took the police arsenal. About 30 minutes later, the other two officers, Kennedy and Scanlon, returned on horseback while the Kelly gang was hiding. McIntyre walked towards Kennedy, but before he could speak to him, the Kelly gang ordered the police to drop their weapons. Kennedy tried to unclip his holster, and shots were fired by the gang. Scanlon dismounted and was shot while trying to grab his rifle, dying soon after. Gunfire continued to be exchanged between Kennedy and the Kelly gang. McIntyre, who was still unarmed, mounted Kennedy's horse and was able to escape. Kennedy retreated into the bush. Ned and Dan pursued him for almost a mile before Ned shot him in the right side. Kennedy then turned around to face him and Ned shot him in the chest with his shotgun not realizing that Kennedy had dropped his revolver and was trying to surrender. McIntyre reached Mansfield Police Station the following day, and a search party quickly found the bodies of Lonigan and Scanlon. Kennedy's body was found two days later. The bodies had been looted of watches, rings, and other personal items. The men then raided two small towns called Euroa and Geraldary, robbing banks in both towns as well. Kelly believed the banks were crushing the poor, so he also took deeds, mortgages, and securities from the bank safe. The communication lines were cut, and residents were held hostage in a hotel, although many of the hostages were believed to be sympathizers. The Kelly gang distributed most of the money from the raids to family, friends, and associates who had been providing assistance. After the second raid, Kelly was not seen again for nearly 18 months. The Victorian police continued to receive many reports of sightings of the outlaws from the public and information about their activities from their network of paid informants. The police used the house of former Greta mob member and lifelong friend of Joe Byrne, Aaron Sherritt, as a base of operations, sleeping in it during the day and keeping watch from nearby caves at night. Sherritt was also acting as an informant, although the information he was giving police was not believed to be reliable. He even told them, Quote, I look upon Ned Kelly as an extraordinary man. There is no man in the world like him. He is superhuman. Despite the relationship with the Kelly gang and a warning from Joe Byrne, the gang decided Sherritt's relationship with the police was a problem. On the evening of June 26, 1880, 
Joe Byrne forced a neighbor to knock on the back door of Sherrod's home. Sherrod opened the door and Byrne shot him in the throat with a shotgun, killing him. The police remained inside the house for hours after the murder, fearing that the bush rangers were still waiting outside for them. The gang assumed the policemen inside Sherrod's hut would relay news of his murder by early Sunday morning, prompting a special police train to be sent up from Melbourne and continue through a small town called Glen Rowan. The gang planned to wreck the train and shoot dead any survivors, then ride to the unpoliced town of Benalla, where they would rob the banks, set fire to the courthouse, blow up the police barracks, release anyone imprisoned, and wreak havoc on the entire town. The outlaws selected a sharp curve in the train line that ran across a deep ravine and forced two railway workers to destroy the track. The gang arrived in Glen Rowan, where they took over the railway station, the station master's home, and the Glen Rowan Inn. The gang used the hotel to hold their prisoners, but most of the women and children taken hostage were held at the station master's home. The other hotel in town, McDonald's Railway Hotel, on the other side of the tracks, was used to stable the gang's stolen horses, one of which carried a tin of blasting powder and fuses. Their horses also carried suits of armor, each complete with a helmet and weighing nearly 100 pounds. The armor was designed to provide protection from the outlaws as they stood on top of the embankment, firing down on any survivors of the train wreck. At about 10 p.m., Ned Kelly and Joe Byrne captured Glen Rowan's lone constable, Hugh Bracken, with the assistance of a hostage named Thomas Curnow a local schoolmaster who wanted to gain the Kellys' trust in order to thwart their plans. Believing that Kernow was a sympathizer, Ned let him and his wife return to their home, which was close to the railway tracks. He warned them to go quietly to bed and not to dream too loud. The train was on the way, carrying 12 troopers, 4 journalists, and several other civilians. Acting on intelligence that the tracks may be sabotaged, a pilot engine was ordered to travel ahead of the police train. At 2.30 in the morning, the pilot train was approaching Glen Rowan when Thomas Curnow ran to the tracks and signaled it to stop, and alerted the driver of the danger. Ned Kelly decided to let the hostages return home as Byrne came inside with news that a train had arrived. The outlaws suited up in their armor and prepared for a confrontation. Constable Bracken told the remaining hostages to lie low and escape to the railway station to explain the situation to the police. On hearing Bracken's news, Police Superintendent Francis Hare immediately led a detachment of police towards the hotel just after 3 a.m. The four outlaws waited in the shadows in the front of the building. When the police became visible in the moonlight, about 30 yards away, the gang opened fire. The police returned fire and about 100 to 150 rounds were fired in 15 minutes. Someone shouted that there were women and children inside the building and the shooting stopped momentarily. Hare was wounded in the left wrist and soon had to return to the town of Benalla for treatment. Ned Kelly was wounded in the left hand and arm and his right foot. Joe Byrne was shot in the leg and retreated into the hotel. Two hostages were wounded by police fire that came through the thin walls of the building. 13-year-old John Jones and railway worker Martin Cherry. A third hostage, George Metcalf, was also fatally wounded, either by police fire or Ned Kelly. During the lull in firing, a number of hostages, mostly women and children, escaped from the hotel. Ned Kelly, bleeding heavily from his wounds, retreated behind the hotel and made his way into the bush where police found his skullcap and rifle at about 3.30 in the morning, roughly 100 yards from the hotel. 
the police surrounded the hotel and the firing continued intermittently throughout the night. At about 5 a.m., Byrne was fatally shot in the groin while making a toast to the Kelly gang in the bar. Police reinforcements arrived at 5.30 a.m., bringing the police contingent to about 40. At dawn, Ned Kelly, dressed in his armor and armed with three handguns, came out of the bush and attacked the police from behind. Eyewitnesses compared the figure moving in the early morning mist to the devil and a ghost. The police returned fire as Kelly moved towards the hotel, staggering from his injuries, the weight of the armor, and the impact of bullets smashing against the iron. Kelly had difficulty aiming, firing, and reloading his weapon due to his injuries and the limited vision through his helmet. The gun battle lasted close to a half hour, with Dan Kelly and Steve Hart providing cover fire from the hotel until Ned Kelly was brought down with two shotgun blasts to his unprotected legs and thighs. Kelly was disarmed and carried to the railway station where a doctor attended to his injuries. He was later found to have more than 28 wounds, including a serious gunshot wound to his left elbow and right foot. In the meantime, the siege continued until a ceasefire was called at 10 a.m., and the remaining 30 hostages left the hotel. The police ordered the hostages to lie down and they were checked to ensure that the outlaws were not among them. Just before 3 in the afternoon on Monday, over 500 spectators had gathered at Glen Rowan. Dan Kelly and Steve Hart had ceased shooting. The police decided to burn the hotel to force the outlaws to come outside. A Catholic priest entered the burning building in an attempt to rescue anyone inside and discovered the bodies of Joe Byrne, Dan Kelly, and Steve Hart. The exact circumstances of their deaths remains a mystery. Ned Kelly survived to stand trial. On October 19, 1880, Kelly was presented on the charge of murdering Constables Lonigan and Scanlon. He was never charged with the murder of Sergeant Kennedy. Kelly was convicted of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. After handing down the sentence, Judge Redmond Barry, who also sentenced Kelly's mother to three years of hard labor, concluded with the customary words, May God have mercy on your soul. To which Kelly replied, I will go a little farther than that, and I will see you where I go. He was hung on November 11th, 1880. Here's my take on Ned Kelly. He was a total badass, that's for sure. But, uh, he was probably a pretty fucked up guy. A common outcome when you have a piece of shit father. He's kind of a Robin Hood folk hero, by some accounts, but he did a lot of bad shit and killed people. June 30th, 1908, the Tunguska event, the largest impact event on Earth in recorded history. At about 7.15 in the morning, Evenki natives and Russian settlers in the hills near Lake Baikal observed a bluish light, shining like the sun, moving across the sky and leaving a thin trail. The flash was producing a cloud of smoke, followed by a pillar of fire that cast a red light on the landscape. The pillar of fire then turned black. About 10 minutes later, there was a sound similar to artillery fire. The sounds were accompanied by a shockwave that knocked people off their feet and broke windows over a hundred miles away. Though the region of Siberia in which the explosion occurred was very sparsely populated in 1908, 
There are accounts of the event from eyewitnesses who were in the surrounding area at the time, and regional newspapers reported the event shortly after it occurred. Many people reported similar stories with differences based on the distance from the impact site. The sky was bright like the sun, the wind was hot and violent, trees were snapping in half, and the thunderous impact knocked people to the ground, leaving them disoriented. 80 million trees were flattened over 830 square miles of forest. Recent studies suggest the explosive power of the Tunguska event may have been up to 20 to 30 megatons, which is equal to a very large nuclear bomb. The explosion registered at seismic stations across Eurasia, and airwaves from the blast were detected in Germany, Denmark, Croatia, and the United Kingdom, and as far away as Washington, D.C., Over the next few days, night skies in Asia and Europe were glowing. It has been theorized that this sustained glowing effect was due to light passing through high-altitude ice particles that formed at extremely low temperatures as a result of the explosion. The leading scientific explanation for the Tunguska event is an airburst of an asteroid or meteor four to six miles above the Earth's surface. Events of this magnitude are believed to happen about once every thousand years. Meteors enter the Earth's atmosphere from outer space every day, traveling at a speed of at least 7 miles per second, but most burn up and disintegrate or explode before they reach the ground. The meteor from the Tunguska event was likely between 350 to 700 feet in diameter, traveling close to 50,000 miles per hour. Astrophysicist Wolfgang Kunt has proposed that the Tunguska event was caused by the release and subsequent explosion of 10 million tons of natural gas from within the Earth's crust. The basic idea is that the natural gas leaked out of the crust and then rose up into the atmosphere. From there, it drifted downwind and eventually found an ignition source such as lightning. Once the gas was ignited, the fire streaked along the crust like a wick and then down to the source of the leak inside the ground, creating a huge explosion. With that said, the scientific consensus is that the Tunguska explosion was caused by the impact of a small asteroid. Here's my take on the Tunguska event. Can you imagine if that happened in New York City? Or basically anywhere aside from a desolate forest in Russia? I hope there's a giant team of scientists watching the sky at all times. There has to be, right? There has to be. There fucking better be. June 30th, 2009. Yemenia Flight 626 crashes into the Indian Ocean, killing 152 of the 153 people on board. A 14-year-old girl named Bahia Bakari is the lone survivor of the crash. The crash occurred at night off the coast of Comoros in the Indian Ocean. An unseasonably strong cold front moved through the Comoros Islands that evening, bringing wind gusts up to 40 miles per hour, but the conditions were still adequate for light turbulence. As the aircraft was approaching to land, it flew past the airport and off the flight path, followed by a left turn. The aircraft then stalled and crashed into the sea at 10.50 p.m. A United Nations official at the airport said the control tower received a notification that the plane was approaching to land before losing contact. 
13 hours after the crash, a search party spotted 14-year-old girl Bahia Bakari clinging to a piece of debris among bodies and wreckage about 9 miles north of the coastline. She clung to a piece of aircraft wreckage, floating in heavy seas and pitch darkness before being rescued. As soon as Bakari was sighted, a member of the rescue team threw her a life preserver, but the waters were too rough and she was too exhausted to grab it. One of the sailors jumped into the water and handed her a flotation device, and they were both pulled to safety. Bakari had been traveling with her mother, who did not survive. She reported later that initially there must have been other survivors, as she could hear them after the crash, but later the voices became silent. Dubbed the Miracle Girl by the World Press, Bakari was flown back to France on a private government jet. Arriving at the airport, she was reunited with her father and the rest of her family, then transported to a Paris hospital. She was treated for a fractured pelvis and collarbone, burns to her knees, and some facial injuries. Bakari was released from the hospital three weeks later. She has reportedly turned down an offer by Steven Spielberg to make a film based on her 2010 book, I'm Bahia, The Miracle Girl. In the book, she explains that immediately after the crash, she thought she had fallen out of the airplane by pressing her forehead too hard against the window, and that her mother, who she believed had landed safely without her, would scold her for not wearing her seatbelt. The investigation into the crash determined that it was caused by inappropriate actions of the crew, leading to a stall from which the aircraft did not recover. The approach was unstabilized, triggering various alarms for ground proximity, aircraft configuration, and approach to stall. The distressed crew was focused on navigating and did not react adequately to the different alarms. Windy weather conditions, a lack of training, and a failure to respond to the pull-up alarm also contributed to the accident. Here's my take on Yemenia Flight 626. It's truly amazing what the mind and body can do in a survival situation. Bahia, please make that movie. You're amazing and Spielberg is too. It would be terrifying, I'm sure, but it would be incredible. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. I don't give a shit. June 28th, 1859. The first confirmation dog show is held in Newcastle, England. Why is this acknowledged as a part of history? A dog show? Really? June 30th, 1966. The National Organization for Women, the United States' largest feminist organization, is founded. I can't imagine anything worse than being forced to attend one of their events. Actually, I can. Being married to a feminist would actually be much worse. Offending them with every word out of your mouth and being in a constant state of irrational misery. June 30th, 2005, MTV Canada is rebranded as Razor. I figured Canada had the same MTV as the United States. Maybe they had some shows in French or something. Doesn't matter. That's going to do it this week. Feels good to be back looking up some interesting history and recording these episodes. See you next time.